0: Very pleased to be joined by the historian and author Ann Applebaum, one of the most insightful commentators on domestic and global affairs, and particularly this revanchist movement we see in the United States across Europe uh, that is hostile to the liberal democratic values and the systems that emerged in the aftermath of the Second World War, and though imperfect have largely kept global peace for 80 years and have certainly advanced human progress uh, at a level that I think sometimes uh, both beggars imagination and is not widely known. But welcome, Ann Applebaum.
1: Thanks. Thanks. Glad to be here.
0: Um, there is a person that you remind me of historically who I've never met but who I've read a great deal of and that's Dorothy Thompson and she had the distinction of being the first journalist an American kicked out of Hitler's Germany out of the out of the Reich I think wrote the greatest column explaining fascism and the affinity of people towards it in uh, a New Yorker column you know, speculated. Guess who the Nazi is? as a as a dinner and and parlor game. Um, she talked about the collapse of democracies as an eyewitness before Senate testimony in nineteen thirty seven. She was an FDR New Dealer, uh, but was absolutely opposed to his court packing scheme and deeply worried about it. Um. When she talked about the collapse of democracy, her main point was that people just are not willing to fight for a concept and an idea that they think has failed them with regard to their life, their economic prosperity, but they are willing to fight for that economic prosperity at the expense of their democracy. And so as we stand at this moment in the United States where Biden, if the election were tomorrow by all accounts and all the polls, uh, would lose the election to Trump, I don't think we're fated to that. Uh, we have Elise Stefanik on national television talking about the January 6th perpetrators three years later or hostages. So on, so on and so forth. How how do you see all of this in its totality? In the, so, in the highest
1: lens. So let me unpick a little bit what you just said. Um you know, one is the question of are people willing to fight for an idea as opposed to fighting for their own economic interests? Um and, you know, I, I know that it's, it's quite fashionable to say that, you know, pe- democracy is too complicated a concept. People, you know, people don't understand these questions of rule of law and justice. And, you know, it all takes place on a higher level and everybody just wants to know where their next meal is coming from. Um, I actually disagree with that. And I think there is um, quite a lot of proof of that. Over time, both in our country but also in other countries, and we can come back to that um, as well. Um, I do think that we live in a moment when the ideas have become muddied, and um, you know, and have bec- and we 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 lack people who clearly explain them or people who are able to organize movements around them. Um, and I think that's you know, that's a, that's a part of the problem that we're seeing now, I would say that. The third thing I would say is that we, um, you know, way, the way you started your statement, you know, you talked about this um, 80 years of relative peace and prosperity, uh, rules of international order that at least kept the peace in some parts of the world, you know, it meant that we didn't have another big war in Europe. Uh, it meant that conflicts were contained even if they weren't always prevented um you know we we took a lot of that for granted um we were all you and me and you know people our age and 10 years older and 10 years younger were very very lucky to live at a particular moment in history when it was just assumed that peace was the norm and democracy was the ultimate aspiration Uh, and we're now returning to something that's more normal um, historically speaking or more you know closer to what dorothy thompson was describing in the you know in the 1930s 1940s we're returning to a time when um democracy is a thing that has to be fought for against different kinds of forces that want to undo it um, and preparing again to do that and 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 beginning to think about how to do that and how to mobilize people again in a way that we haven't had to mobilize them in a long time, is the challenge of the current moment. Um, you know, I like to the a real a, a good metaphor for a way to think about how we're where we where we are right now is is actually the metaphor of running water. You know, we all live in a society now where we just assume that water comes out of the tap, right? We don't think about where the water comes from. We don't worry about the pipes. We don't know really how the technology works. We don't care about it. We just turn the tap on and we get water. Um, We are now returning to an era before that when we had to think about water. You might have to go to the well to get the water or think about buckets or uh, prepare during the day to assume you have enough water. In other words, something that was automatic to us and didn't require that much thought, which was the existence of democracy and the rule of law. Um, we're now going to have to begin to fight for, to think about, to go back to basics, to understand it better, um, to talk about it more. Um, if we want it to continue, if we want to, if we want to have that sense of automaticity, you know, that this is automatically where we live, then you know, and the, the society that we live in, we may have to do more about it. You know, all of us got used to this idea that democracy was something that was done by specialists. You know political consultants or politicians or people who live in Washington and the rest of us all we had to do was show up every four years and vote or maybe not vote because it wasn't that important Um, and then the system would keep going actually it turns out that it might be a system that we have to be involved in we have to think about we have to care about it you know we it has to be part of our lives we have to worry about it in ways that we didn't before and so I think that's the that's the, that's the change that we're living through. Um, you know, it's, it's not so much that people won't fight for it or don't care about it uh, or prefer their own economic interests, it's that we have to have to think harder about how to mobilize around it, how to push it, and how to make sure that it remains real. You know, it's a, it's not a and it's not like a battle that will be won and then it's over and we can all go back to making money or painting paintings or doing whatever we were doing before. It's a struggle and it's gonna go on probably for the rest of our lives. You know, if we wanna maintain um, a, a, a political system where uh, you know, freedom and the rule of law and you know, a certain uh, you know, tolerance for, you know, for political and other kinds of minorities is the norm then we will have to, many more of us will have to be engaged than we ever were.
0: Um, it's shocking to watch Trump or at least Stefanik or there's 50 other examples I could give you where somebody looks into a television camera and says the red chair is blue, right? That the convicted felons are now hostages and you're sitting there saying, what are, are people conceivably going to believe this? Is it possible that they could believe this? And you kind of step back in the historical perspective and you say, you know, we live in a country where the casualty estimates of the Civil War were revised upwards about 10 years ago after a really deep analysis. And so you had a a nation of 34 million people uh, where there were somewhere between 750,000 to 800 Fifty thousand casualties. In 1885, the political era of Abraham Lincoln, Ulysses Grant, dies and he's the most famous American in the world and he's revered. Um, you get to the beginning of the 20th century. You know, Grant is routinely mentioned in the same breath as Washington and Jefferson and Lincoln and by 1930, he's gone. And And by 1930, in fact, a military genius was a butcher. A military genius was a drunk. a a a a near great president uh, was corrupt. And all of the noble virtues are assigned to the loser, a traitor, Robert Robert E. Lee, the myth of the lost cause. if If you could come out of the American Civil War, uh, within a few decades or maybe a few more on top of that with the entire narrative of what happened topsy-turvied I think Taneshi Coates speaks about this the North won the war the South won the myth then, then certainly it's possible and and this is the lesson I suppose of all dictatorships is to invent and manufacture their own reality and their own truth. Uh, under the velocity of their under the velocity of their lies, and so when you look at the propaganda element of this, the the, the stream of invective and vitriol that's directed at Biden at the pro democracy forces the um and from my perspective the incapacity for a number of different reasons, some structural, some not to to be able to respond to it. How how do you think about that as central uh, to being able to communicate about the exigent threat, the existential threat ahead? When I think of the explanation, despite all the technology, all the advances in filmography, I'm not sure that there's a better explanation of who the fascists are and who we are than Frank Capra's 1942 film, which was Why We Fight, and how the country got right into World War II. But how do you think about that?
1: So um, you're right that... Um creating myths and, you know, coding the past with lies and reconstructing what happened, you know, is a, is a trait of every dictatorship, you know, probably going back to Rome, but certainly the ones of the 20th century, um, you know, were, were famous for doing that. You know, the, the construction of a, of a historical mythology and a kind of series of events that justify the present, um, is you know is, is is as old as autocracy. Um, you know the 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 you know there was a communist mythology about the heroism of Stalin. You know that that was entirely false, um, based on a completely fake account of the of the Bolshevik Revolution and the and the and the 1920 wars. Um, you know Hitler had a had a fake story about his own life and his own trajectory. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, once again, I would, I would stress the idea that I think for a long time, Americans half convinced themselves, certainly, I mean, that I was convinced when I was growing up, um, that this, this quality didn't really apply to us, you know, that we had a, we had a better and clearer understanding of history and a, um, and, uh, you know, and the, and the narrative of progress, um, was, was was somehow solid you know that okay where there was the the revolution and then this the civil war kind of corrected the revolution and then we had the civil rights movement that corrected that and you know now we were on to something um to something better and i think what we forgot was that bad ideas never die you know they they don't go away, you know. Just because they've been defeated, you know, just because Nazism was defeated, doesn't mean that it doesn't come back in different forms. Just because, um, you know, white supremacy was defeated in the in the Civil War, doesn't mean it doesn't rearise. Um, and being vigilant about the return of bad ideas, um, and constantly being aware that they can and will come back, and not being complacent. I think Americans became very complacent. Um, in the 20th century because of, you know, we enjoyed so much success. We forgot that, um, we forgot what could lead to failure, um, you know, is a, you know, again, something that needs to be done now. I mean, almost constant reminder of, of, you know, what happened in our history and how we have to continue to overcome it is important. But your other point is about um, truth and untruth, which is, you know, um, again, autocracies are always based upon, uh, you know, an attempt to discover or, uh, sorry, an attempt to distort or rearrange uh, reality. And another element that we have to contend with now is that there are many more ways to do that than there used to be. You know, it's not just the dictator telling a story. You know, the dictator can now have, you know, hundreds of trolls, you know, paid and unpaid, who can Echo and repeat that story for him. Um, the dictator can, um, you know, can use you know other forms of technology. I mean, we haven't we haven't seen the full impact of AI yet, but I'm I'm, I'm sure that we will in the coming election campaign. Um, you know the you know there there are lessons that have been learned over the over the last several decades. You know, if you repeat lies enough. If you provide a constant stream of them, you know, if you confuse people, if you produce this, you know, the famous expression is firehood of falsehoods. This was a kind of Russian invention, you know, if you continually put out lies one after the next, um, you know, you begin to loosen the idea of truth itself and then um, people feel, you know, they're not rooted in reality anymore. They doubt this, you know, all sources of information, whether it's the media or whether it's the government or whether it's universities. Um, and then they begin to doubt everything. And people who doubt everything and people who don't know what to believe and aren't oriented are much easier to manipulate. Um, so, so you know, you're seeing right now several things going on at the same time. One is this, um, you know, return of bad ideas. The second is... Ever more sophisticated ways of you know, convincing people that nothing is true at all and that they don't really know. They can they have no way of knowing what reality is. So they might as well go along with um you know with with whatever's easier. Um, you know, it's it's interesting. I mean, Elise Stefanik is a particularly confusing, in some ways, um, version of this. I mean, it's somebody who's clearly educated, right? Who's clearly intelligent. Who must know she's lying? You know who 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 must understand that you know, the January six perpetrators were insurrectionists and not um, and not heroes, and they're certainly not hostages. Um, you know, and yet has you know is so profoundly cynical that she's using again all these tools. You know the the you know the false language. You know the re- being reinforced by um, you know by waves of of internet emotion. Um, and she's doing it in order to, um, you know, in order to obtain power. I mean, whether it's power for herself or power for her party, you know, remains to be seen. I mean, maybe she wants to be vice president, maybe she wants to be, um, have another leadership role. Um, and, uh, you know, we've, we, we really forgot that that's, you know, that's normal behavior throughout history, that people, yeah. you know, people, people are opportunistic and cynical and they lie to get power.
0: Well, it's an important part of the coalition, right? You have the fanatics, you have the ideologues, but none of it happens, none of it comes to life without the
1: cynics. Yep.
0: Um yep. Let me let me ask you. Turn this towards Ukraine and to the war and towards the uh, global security situation. Um, 1923, Hitler's putsch. Uh, we are 101 years on, and we are 100 years on now uh, from the birth dates of men like Jimmy Carter and George Herbert Walker Bush. Uh, Jimmy Carter just missed the war; he graduated in Annapolis in 1946. George Bush was the youngest fighter pilot, uh, naval aviator in the in the Pacific. Um, but when we think back. Uh, towards, you know, what's called the greatest generation, a, a lot of the young men uh, who landed on the beaches and who are buried under the crosses were born uh, in a 24 uh, after after the 19, 100 years ago was their birth dates. And there's something true about history. The 16th century was deadlier than the 15th and the 17th and the 16th, the 18th more than the 17th. The 19th was a very deadly century. Uh, It was a preface to industrial war. And things went completely off the hook, as you know, in the 20th century, where by the time you reach the midpoint with mankind's possession of weapons that can extinct civilization, uh, 100 million dead in the second global war of the first half of the century, History has been broken or postponed, Uh, but there's a lot of time left in the 21st century uh, to exceed the butcher's bill of the 20th century. And so my first question, and I'm going to ask a bunch of them put together, who is is winning the war in, in Ukraine and Russia? And two, it seems to me that Donald Trump's security vision is very clear. Uh, He views the world in a 19th century sense. Uh, He's a mercantilist in some regard, Um, amoral, Uh, but he doesn't understand why the United States would extend a security guarantee to Taiwan. Uh, He looks at that as China's backyard and doesn't care. Uh, He looks at Ukraine as Russia's backyard and whoever the strongest power in Europe may be, let them fight it out if that's what they want to do. And I think that Trump looks at the Western Hemisphere as my territory. Um, I don't think you ever have to look uh, forward to Trump trying to send an American army, let's say, to the Middle East. I think that's anathematic to him. Um, But I think there's a real lack of imagination about an American army rolling south into Mexico or into Venezuela or into other places in the hemisphere. Uh, Trump ideologically doesn't necessarily want a foreign war on the other side of the world, but all dictators want a war and and Donald Trump's personality would suggest that that he too uh, would not be indisposed towards sending that. So when you look at the world and you look at an American president that would, I think within a week functionally abrogate article 5 of NATO um, that pretty quickly would realign um, the world in the sense that the United States is not is not coming to help you. the United States is is going home. talk about that in the context agreement disagreement um but also in the context of this of this war in, in Ukraine. Um, United States weapons supplies to Ukraine are tenuous at best. Um, there is an unbelievable hostility towards the Ukrainian nation from this MAGA right that is fully in league with the ambitions of Vladimir Putin or useful idiots for him. However, however you see the world Talk to talk to a warning community, if you would, about this moment and the next moments as the security situation continues to unravel in a way that I find very, very worrisome.
1: So what you're talking about is Trump's dislike of the idea of collective defense. So Trump is not interested in America having allies and in working with other countries to preserve regions of stability. Um, I don't
0: want to cut you. I don't want to cut you off there, but I, I want to take for an academic purpose, right? I want to take the Trump position on this. Is the German army is it prepared to fight? It is not. The Canadians have the capacity, maybe, to send a battalion to Haiti, but maybe not when you look across the the Western European nations, what countries have a military that's ready to fight today?
1: Well, I'm speaking to you here from Poland. That's Um, one of them. And the Poles would fight and and think about it frequently. Um, I believe the British and French can fight and they periodically do. I believe that if there were a war that, um, you know, that, 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 you know, that challenged Europe, I believe you would find Dutch soldiers, you would find Scandinavian soldiers, um, you would, you might even find Italian and Spanish soldiers that will fight, and you would even find some Germans who would fight. Um, You know, much would depend on how the Contest was organized and how people understood it, but um, you, you know, and you, you know, you would you might also have without the United States as an organizing power, and that's by the way the United States most important function in Ukraine. Um, it's not just that the U.S. gives money. Actually, if you if you look at the numbers and you count EU donations, which of course come from the member states, um, the U.S. and the European Union give about the same amount of money to Ukraine. Um, but the U.S. has a fundamentally important organizing leadership function, and of course has a military that um, it's not just the scale of the military; it's also the command and control systems, um, the experience of leadership that the you know the rest of Europe, Europe as a whole doesn't have. Um, so you know, I, I think you would find you would find people who would fight. You just wouldn't find the the leadership and the and the you know, the, the you know, the, the galvanizing force that the U.S. can provide. Um, you know, I don't think it's the case that, you know, Europeans are, I don't know, in, incapable of warfare anymore. I, I think that's a, you know, it hasn't happened here in a long time, but you now have a sense of, um, at least in, among some Europeans, you have a sense of existential conflict that you didn't have before. Um, You certainly had that at the beginning of this war Um, and, you know, it's not universal and it's not everywhere, but it's, it's quite powerful. Um, So I, so I don't, I don't think we're, you know, what, what the U.S. does is the, you know, just returning to the beginning of our conversation is the U.S. in a way brings the organizing ideas and principles, you know, people People would fight for freedom, and they would do so under American leadership, um, because they do believe in that idea, and they believe in, and um, in, you know, and certainly Europeans believe in the idea that you know larger countries shouldn't be able to occupy and and um, and destroy smaller ones. Um, people understand that the Russian occupation of of Eastern Ukraine. Is a totalitarian occupation. You know, when the Russians come into a region, they arrest all the local people. They create concentration camps. They kidnap and deport children. Um, they commit human right human rights abuses on a scale that nobody has seen in Europe, and you know, since the generation of you know Jimmy Carter and and George Bush Senior, maybe before that. Um, so people understand that, um, but. But it's the American leadership and America and you know, military leadership and thought leadership, kind of ideas leadership that that the U.S. can bring, and and those things are of course um, Trump can't bring those because Trump doesn't understand those ideas and he doesn't really believe in themselves. He doesn't himself care about human rights abuse or kidnap children. Um, he, he, you know, he's a his he he admires cruelty. And he admires um, absolute power, um, and the United States has always stood for the opposite of that.
0: Absolutely, and and that is that is the key point. He admires Vladimir Putin, and he, he very much wishes to emulate his role. Yeah, and I think
1: I think I think it's important that people also understand it's not just Putin. He admires she, absolutely. You know, he admires um, you know the North Koreans, um, and he's he said so. He's told us so repeatedly he you know he says it over and over again um and the you know the idea that you sometimes hear on the maga right that well you know we're fighting the wrong war we should be fighting china that's our real rival not russia that's not how trump thinks you know trump trump you know admires dictatorships and he admires you know autocracy um and he would admire it in different forms he would he would he would feel the same way about taiwan that he feels about ukraine
0: I I say this as somebody who grew up in New Jersey and share a culture with Trump. I'm going to explain this perfectly. He has a Cosa Nostra philosophy. Uh, It's territorial. He's got his family. um, They got theirs. And um, there may be issues between us where our boundaries abut. But generally speaking, so long as you respect the boundary, there'll be peace and and that is and that is the trump philosophy it, it is not it is not built around a maintenance of an international system sustained by american hard and soft power and the rule of law and international treaty that you know is the culmination of really hundreds of years of uh, advancement in human progress uh, it's, a, it's an extraordinary uh, thing to behold in in 2023 but I wanted I wanted to I wanted to ask in in Ukraine the Russian army has sustained in some media accounts 500,000 casualties uh its officer corps has been decimated um, what is the Russian capacity to keep fighting what is the Ukrainian capacity to keep fighting and and what does a ceasefire line look like in in Ukraine that stops the war uh, or holds it in place uh, for some period some period of time or do you subscribe to the notion um, that Zelensky holds that he will liberate every inch of Ukrainian territory held by Russians which is an American in a, pr- a position I. Deeply appreciate, but I wonder if it is achievable and whether the entire weight of America's national security and foreign policy position should be behind something that is not achievable.
1: So let me, I mean, this will sound it's paradoxical, but the the war will be over uh, when the Russians feel they can't win. So- you know, the war will end when the Russians go home, when they feel they've lost, when they give up the idea of conquering all of Ukraine. Um, And when that happens, we we don't, I can't tell you exactly when and how that will happen, um, but we will know it. Like there will, there will be a you know, there will be whether it will be a Putin will change or there will be a leadership change or there will be some change, political change in Russia, not necessarily regime change, but just a a change of movement. You know, the, the moment when they decide they don't want to do it anymore is when the war is over. And I think at that moment, then we can negotiate where the borders will be.
0: Are we getting but, there?
1: Um so the the only way we can get there is for you know is for Russia to run out of steam, out of energy, out of people, out of ammunition. Um, we could get there. and I uh, you know, I've just been to Ukraine actually. I went right before New Year's um, at, you know in December. And you know, if we can, can can continue to help Ukraine, if we can help Ukraine build up its defense industry, if we can help Ukraine create a, a, you know, a professional long-term, long-standing army, which is what they're trying to do now. Um, if we convince the Russians that we aren't going to leave, that we will be there, and not just convince them, you know, tactically or in a narrative way, but convince them because it's true, um, you know, then it is a matter of time before the Russians begin to ask, what are we doing this for? You know, there is, um, you know, it's not Russia. It's, you know, we are not winning. We are not winning hearts and minds. We are not conquering territory that it will then be easy to hold. Um, and so the so the so the so the victory depends a lot on whether, you know we can win both it's both a military battle and a psychological battle. You know, we convince the Russians that we aren't leaving, we are staying. Um, we do stay. We help Ukraine create a permanent, um, you know, you know, kind of a, a permanent war economy, if you will. I mean, the Ukrainians sometimes talk about Israel um, in the sense of, you know, being, or or South Korea, you know, being a state that is permanently ready to defend itself. If we help Ukraine become that, then I think, you know, that will help end the war. I mean, the Ukrainians had hoped for some kind of victory, perhaps involving Crimea, um, that would you know that would be the blow that would convince the Russians to leave. Maybe they'll achieve that and maybe they won't. Um, there was more hope for that a few months ago than there is now. But the but you know, it's still about holding on and holding out and convincing the Russians to go home. And you know literally the war is over when the Russians leave.
0: And of um, course, and of course, the the central reason looking at uh, looking at the world through Russian eyes, in looking at the world through Vladimir Putin's eyes, why on earth would he ever give up and give in with 500,000 casualties um, when Donald Trump could be elected president in November? So the demand side for the for the war continuing is the idiocy of the useful idiots in the American Congress and around Donald Trump and Trump himself, who whose position really um, makes it impossible for for Putin to walk away, makes it impossible for the country to communicate uh, what it is you are suggesting needs to be, to be communicated. And so we'll probably have at least one more fighting season. And if Trump goes down in the election, uh, probably the lines as the winter starts next year, 24, 25, Will be the lines around which you know permanent demarcations so, and ceasefires I, are negotiated I, yeah so with, with i him. it's
1: not the, the 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 final border isn't what's important you know the what's important is that it becomes clear that the russians are leaving and w- want to end the war is and it the reason you can't have is a negotiation right have... now is the reason you can't have a negotiation now is not because you know Zelensky is a maximalist and he's you know unrealistic and so on the reason you can't have a negotiation right now is that Putin doesn't want to end the war. You know, because so he
0: believes his position will improve.
1: He believes his position will improve because if Trump is the president, then Trump will hand over, you know, half or all or some large parts of Ukraine and will no longer defend Ukraine. In, so, I mean, I mean, happened. so literally, Trump is is playing a huge role in this war, just by being the person who. Putin can Putin is counting on um to give him the advantage and let him win let me
0: let me let me ask this question as a as a historian is there any American um from 1900 forward that has ever played a role as pronounced as the one Trump is playing the way you just articulated it so you had Lindbergh in the in the 30s, he was decorated by by Ribbentrop. He wasn't the head of state. Um, Americans forget, though, that you know the draft was preserved in 1940 by one vote, um, which would have made it impossible had we lost the draft in 1940 to have invaded France before probably 1946, which might have made the task um, impossible but is there any american who has played a comparable role in support of a foreign dictator's aggression in the way that trump is right now i mean he he is he is the hope of the russian <laughs> of the russian aggression yeah
1: i mean you could put the the best comparison to me of the, the 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 maga right is actually to the far left in the you know in the in the Sort of pre-war and post-war year. I mean, you you know there were American communists who supported Soviet communism, you know, in in all kinds of ways. The difference, of course, is that none of them ever had any power, or any significant power. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, they were they were they were in favor of a of a of a of an autocratic dictatorship that wanted to defeat the United States, but they weren't in any position to bring that about you know what's different and unusual and new about trump is that he's somebody who favors the you know the aims and beliefs of a foreign dictatorship that wants to defeat um you know american allies um and the and he's in a position to have influence that and affect it so in that sense he's worse than they are
0: do you think that ukraine will become a nuclear power
1: um you know i don't know um uh you know, it, there's, it's a certainly an interesting um, historical puzzle, you know, had Ukraine been allowed to keep its nuclear weapons um, after the fall of the Soviet Union, would we be having this war now? My guess is that we would not. Um, and of course, everyone around the world is also, this is another reason why everybody's watching the outcome of this conflict. You know, if Ukraine is to lose because it gave up its nuclear weapons then what is the incentive for anybody to give up nuclear weapons ever again or to not acquire them? You know, why wouldn't South Korea want nuclear weapons? Why wouldn't Japan want nuclear weapons? Um, You know, if you if you if you why wouldn't Taiwan want nuclear weapons? I mean, I'm not saying these are countries that all have the have the ability to obtain them. But um, but the you know, this is another. Issue that's at stake in this war. You know, if we, you know, we gave Ukraine um, in the 1990s, we and the British and the Russians actually gave Ukraine this guarantee of independence and 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 of its and of its borders um, in exchange for Ukraine giving up its nuclear weapons. I don't know how many Americans know that, but we did, um, and you know, were Ukraine to lose its sovereignty and to lose its independence after that, then the incentive for everybody else to get nuclear weapons is suddenly much higher. I mean, may, that may have happened already.
0: I want to close out with you. I know you are in Poland and it is late in the evening. and You've had a long day there. But I do want to talk about the deteriorating situation in the in the Middle East. What does it look like to you? Does this look like a situation that is about to uh, escalate or a situation which is contained inside of Gaza? Six months from now, um, I suspect this will be a or have become a wider war. Um before we before we go too much further in this year, I hope I'm wrong about that, but but I'm very curious to what you see and so- and let me and let me and let me just say, I'll lay my cards on the table. um I was involved in the um Israeli elections that deposed Netanyahu in the in the coalition after after twenty twenty. I think he is an amoral leader of a moral nation that must, must, when it fights wars, fight wars morally. And there's no question when you look at the situation that Netanyahu's premiership is entirely dependent on the continuation of the war. Right. So if the if the war ends, let's say, hypothetically, if you could wave a magic wand next Thursday, Hamas is destroyed. It's all over. Hostages are returned on Friday. Netanyahu is out of power on Saturday. So I I look at that situation, and I think it is deeply, deeply worrying in terms of the possibilities for, for escalation? Are the Turks blustering or is Erdogan a person with conviction when when he when he speaks? Well what do you see?
1: So um my fear about Netanyahu is is similar but diff, you know but slight, slightly, vary, slightly varied slightly varied which is that I worry that Netanyahu is, because he's dependent for power on this, on the very extreme uh, far right of his coalition on people who represent a tiny number of Israelis, but have a huge amount of power inside the government. And I am worried that those people want an extreme solution in Gaza. Um, And you've actually heard over the last couple of weeks, you've heard different Members of the Israeli government talk about different endings in Gaza, and one version is that you know we we move in some direction of Palestinian self-rule, or you know I don't know whether a two-state solution is still possible, but some 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 form of um, uh, you know returning Gaza to Palestinian control, and then you have another faction which is clearly talking about expelling people from Gaza. Um, and of course, the expulsion of people from Gaza would, I think, inevitably lead to a wider regional war. Um, the, you know, the idea that you would have population transfer um, and a you know very very ugly <coughs> ugly solution you know that would inevitably first of all would involve Egypt. It might involve other other countries in the region. Um, you know, then I can see the war ending badly. Um, I don't know that that conflict has been resolved even within Netanyahu's government, you know, whether he himself has decided which direction it's going to go. But I think the the choices that are made about how to what to do next in Gaza in the next days and weeks will, you know, will will decide whether the war, you know, whether it spreads or not. You know, I agree with you. I think the, you know, it is of course not a coincidence that Netanyahu is the leader now at this time of crisis, because it's his leadership that has helped provoke it and create it. Um, you know, at the same time, it's of course also a huge tragedy that he's the leader at this time of crisis, because he is completely, you know, um, you know, morally unqualified to be doing what he's doing, um, and he is not capable of leading a. Um, you know, uh, uh, you know, and, and he's, he's not capable of bringing about an end to this conflict that is that that is this is any way fair. I mean, even if you think it's, you know, maybe that's impossible anyway. But um, but his his leadership, you know, he's someone who has divided Israelis. Um, he's allowed the most um, outrageous and the most extreme voices in Israel to have an enormous amount of power. Um, and you know, really the only hope in Israel is that, uh, you know, other other parts of what used to be Likud and other parts of society eventually are able to take control and, and change the direction of the war and of the situation.
0: What a treat it is to be able to spend some time with you. It's for everybody who uh, tunes in. It's like being able to attend a <laughs> private graduate school seminar with one of the smartest, learned, and uh, most thoughtful observers of what's happening in the world there is, Ann Applebaum, thank you very much.
1: Thanks, pleasure to talk to you.